Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Ray Armentrout, Stephanie Burt, Amy Catanzano, Catherine Wagner, and Monica Yoon. You will now hear Stephanie Elliott provide introductions. I want to thank everyone for being here today. <laughs> I'm just going to introduce briefly our panelists and then I will let them get to it. We have Stephanie Burt, who's a professor of English at Harvard. She's the author of several books of poetry and literary criticism, including Belmont Parallel Play, Close Calls with Nonsense, The Forms of Youth, All Season Stephanie, and Why I Am Not a Toddler. Amy Catanzano is the author of three books of poetry and cross-genre work, including Starlight and Two Million, a neo-scientific novella, and Multiversal, recipient of the Penn USA Literary Award in Poetry. An assistant professor at Wake Forest University, she directs the creative writing program. Catherine Wagner is the author of four collections of poetry, most recently Nervous Device, and her work has been anthologized in Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry and elsewhere. She directs the creative BA and MA programs at Miami University in Ohio in creative writing. Monica Yun is the author of Black Acre, which is forthcoming, Ignatz, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Barter. She has been a Wallace Stegner Fellow and a Witcher Binner Fellow. She currently teaches poetry at Princeton University and at the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. Ray Armentrout's most recent book of poems is itself. An earlier book, Versed, won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. In 2015, she received the Levinson Prize from Poetry Magazine. Her poems appear in numerous anthologies. She's a professor emeritus at UC San Diego. And I just wanted to add that I started working at Wesleyan um, at the end of 2013, and actually the first poetry book I worked on there was Ray's book, Up to Speed. Um, and then I really do recall, honestly, when I, I was so disappointed when Ray's book Next Life came out, because when I read it, I thought that she would win many awards. <laughs> I truly was really sad that she didn't. And then when her next book came out, um, Versed, of course, she won those two awards, and I, I was so happy. And I have to say that it's truly a pleasure working with Ray. I really love her work. I think it's wonderful. I enjoy reading it. And she's just a wonderful person, too. I'm delighted that we can be here today to honor her. And she's going to be signing copies of her book at our booth. Our booth is 1213 right after this. You can come and meet her and talk with her. Thank you. So even now that she has lots and lots of imitators, I think I can recognize uh, Ray Armand Trout's poetry anywhere, and I think a lot of, of us share that feeling. Ought meaning should, and ought a cipher. Fetish objects now occur as previous centuries. You can stop dancing now, launch pad. One's known and one knows better in the perfect sentence, the all-new shortlist. Old nagging sense of far enough, what are you afraid of? And those lines, which I selected very quickly, saw first book publication in 2011, 2004, 1995, and 1978. And I could say about any of them what Coleridge said about Wordsworth, which is, quote, they leave an affecting impression that I should have recognized anywhere. And had I met these lines running wild in the desert of Arabia, I should have instantly screamed out Wordsworth, or in this case, Armentrout. Uh, not just the line's brevity, but their deliberateness, the way they ask us to recognize how all of our speech is made of previous speech, the way that they put that speech under a kind of magnifying glass, which sometimes burns, uh, the way that the lines almost shrug and say, here is the language we're given, how can we reject it? But also, how can we accept it? These effects, which are not only ideas, but musical effects, and effects of tone, I'm tempted to say of voice, although, as some of us know, voice is a problematic term, these effects are hers, and they've remained hers since the late 70s. And that's all true not just of fairly abstract passages that draw attention to names for ideas and figures of speech, like the ones I just read you. I could say almost the same thing about lines that, unlike the ones I just quoted, envision something concrete, passages that attend to our experience of sight, of seeing things in the world. And if I had time, 
I would read you some of those. And typically, an Armitrat visual passage will show you something that could be ridiculous or beautiful or both, depending on the angle from which you come at it, uh, and sees the same thing through multiple frames, each of which ironizes the rest. And between the way that her poems treat Kurd language and the way that her poems treat the scene, the visible, the sensory world, it's easy to think of her work as all of a piece. And if you've tried to teach that work or write about it for people who aren't used to it, you've probably found yourself treating it as all of a piece. And that's fine. We need to be able to recognize what a poet who's this original sounds like. But then once we've done that, and this is the takeaway for this whole talk, uh, and there are eight minutes left, uh, we really need to start reading the books one by one. And I'm here today not to say that she's great in general, because you're in this room, I think you, you probably agree, <laughs> or at least that she, her generally she rewards sustained attention. I'm here instead to say when you reread the books, they turn out to differ from one another a lot. They have different emphases, different preoccupations, different ways to use her signature moves. Extremities, for instance, now looks like a book about Minima. That's her 1978 uh, book. It's an early book. A set of experiments. That is 78, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. As to how small poems or parts of poems can get after William Carlos Williams, after Aram Saroyan, after Robert Grenier, and still feel not like sort of conceptual art, but like poems with semantic and syntactic parts inside them. That book looks that way even on the most crowded pages and certainly on the sparsest, which are the ones that now get anthologized, to see how, quote, the sentence flies, how small a bit of description or a bit of narrative can get and still feel like description is also to show in a way that's unlike what Saroyan or Grenier or the 70s Creeley had been showing, how much of our understanding of description or narration involves us filling in the blanks and how much of that fill-in work involves what Roland Barthes called uh, mythology or received ideas or cliches so that, to quote that book, it is as one knew. And once she had done that kind of demonstration, she could give other books other unifying subjects. Precedence from 1985, rereading it, it seems really to me like a book about moving back to San Diego, which she had recently done. I forget the year. Oh, uh, 79. 79. So it took a while to percolate, maybe, but precedence really feels to me like a book about that Southern California space. So these are the hills of home, it begins. To see them is to see double, hear bad puns delivered with a wink. That's about how when we come home, we see an old place through new eyes and remember how we used to see it. That return brings an untoward familiarity because the poet has started her own family. That's a book dedicated to Aaron. Uh, And because if you had the birth family that Armantrout would later describe in her memoir, True, or anti-memoir, you would not want to move toward it, uh, toward an important word in that poem, so much as perhaps away from it. But she came home anyway uh, to a sunnier place where, quote, no one can doubt sunlight's beneficence, and an arm of daisies naturally juts into the lawn. Um, Fanny Howe and Lydia Davis, who would know better than I would, have both argued at length that San Diego matters to Armantrout's work, and my point is that precedence is the book where that mattering is central. In Necromance, or Necromance from 1991, on the other hand, the through line is feminism. This is a book that starts and ends with the gendered stereotypes that Dorothy Dinnerstein called the mermaid and the minotaur, Uh, stereotypes that come to us sometimes from from our parents' habits of speech, sometimes from radio billboards and television. In the title poem, the siren always sings like this, and the sullen come to see their grudge as pose, modeling. And the women or girls in these poems, in necromance, come to feel they have no choice but to act in bad faith, They're sort of captured by a compulsory, insincere gender performance. And you can see this uh, touched on throughout her work, but in Necromance, it's central, and that's one reason why it is drier and maybe closer to cynicism than the language of some of her later books. 
Uh, you can't defeat mortality or memory or fame, which her later books address. You can't get rid of them, but you can maybe get rid of, uh, undermine so thoroughly that it crumbles, the beauty myth, the frame that requires all women to play, quote, the actress, the nun, the kid, or else the gatekeeper, to apologize for any kind of assertiveness so that conversation, to quote another poem from Necromance, breaks down into equal blocks known as skuzamemskis. Couple more minutes, I think, I ought to be using to show you how her later books differ from the earlier ones and from one another. In the pretext from 2001, you still find an interest in gender. Gender is the birthmark which has bothered me, the book opens, but the tones are very different because what holds together that book is not feminism so much as mortality. Frail bodies, especially the bodies of parents uh, and the way we see them uh, as they move toward an exit from this life. I hate body language, Armin Trout says in writing from that book, yet she finds there a way to write about bodies, ill bodies and uncomfortable, vulnerable bodies that sounds as flustered or as frustrated or as dejected as those of us contemplating frail bodies can feel. If I were dying in a hospital bed, she asks, would I get pencil and paper to jot down passing thoughts? Not likely. I myself was always a forwarding address. And that bit of prose poetry shows you how that book connects to the kind of Derridian sense that is there throughout her work that you're never completely present to yourself and to the sense that's specific to that book, to the pretext that neither this world nor the next world, any imaginable next world, can feel like home. Uh, and it's about also the home that is not provided by the mother figures in her work, by the mother in that book. We begin, she writes, with some surrogate mothering. Beginning with a surrogate mother. If much of the pretext addresses the body and the mother's body, the book Up to Speed addresses the poet's own life and her sense of her career. Her life is her own in that book. It doesn't belong to uh, parents or children. And she has to decide, if any of us ever really decide, what to do with the rest of it. I'll read you a little bit uh, of a poem from the beginning of that book of Up to Speed. The plot winnows. The sphinx wants me to guess. Does a road run its whole length at once? Is it such agendas which survive as souls? And these are questions about how we look back on our own lives and on our poetic careers once we have published enough and been writing enough and been read by others enough to think that we have careers and careers also as teachers as well. Wait, what, why is that funny? Is it funny? Is it funny? Okay. Career is a, a weird word because it implies both sort of exchange value, professional reward, and things like the Virgilian career, the sense of what do you want to do with your life as a poet, apart from whether people are reading you or paying you for your poetry. And, and that doubling is central to Up to Speed. I wanted to talk about a couple more books, but I also want not to overstay my welcome. Just saying, her not her most recent book, but the one before that, is a Yeatsian book. It brings her weirdly close to William Butler Yeats who doesn't sound like Armand Trout, but whose late topics turn out to be hers in that book. Not capitalism or feminism so much, uh, but art and artifice, the life course and the decades after youth. Few people like to be told or reminded they're not 30 or not 20, but in just saying, as in a whole bunch of late Yates, that kind of reminder turns into a subject that holds together the book, as Armand Trout keeps saying and feeling what a lot of us who aren't 20 feel that she has been there before, that she has seen too much to be taken in, that her current life is a third or fourth act. One early poem begins, Hush, do you want me to start over? Elsewhere she wonders if we are to writhe professionally as the days nod and wink. And in that book she's asking uh, if she's become the establishment at this point uh, in her life. Is she the enemy if you're young and want to be avant-garde? Of course not. But that kind of looking back, that kind of questioning, is something that she could not have done in, uh, in the pretext or in necromance. And it links, at least in my mind, to the Yates of the circus animal's desertion or the Yates of what then, for whom bad things have already happened along with good things, decades and events in the lives of her friends who are artists have passed. My dead friends don't visit me, says one stanza from that book. They say I didn't know them. 
They say, I didn't know them. Does anybody really know anyone else? Is anybody one person or one body? These are central questions to all of Armantrout. But just saying recognizes not only how hard it is to answer them, but how those questions and those answers change when you've been doing this for a while. And it's also, and I'm going to stop here, almost calm, just saying is, not quite resigned, but less angry than earlier books about the flawed language with which we have to live. If the right metaphor for her tone in the 80s was corrosion, Sometimes Now, the right metaphor, which just saying advances, is, quote, that small fist pump now used to indicate irony's uselessness. <laughs> Thank you. That was, wow, that was amazing. Thank you. Um, I'm really happy to be here um, talking and, and celebrating um, Ray Armentrout's work. I'm going to be speaking about Ray Armentrout's poetry in relation to physics and how she works with concepts in physics and how she's been doing this for uh, many years. She has over 50 poems that reference some aspect of physics, starting with the poem Engines, her 1983 and 1992 collaboration with Ron Silliman, which is included in Vale, um, her selected poems from 2001. And there she references a massless particle known as um, a neutrino, but she says this particle is not a neutrino. The semblance of existence, she says, lurks in the verb. She's jointly exploring particle physics and also what is meant by existence, which I want to talk about today a little bit about how this is a gesture that emerges over and over in her work, this focus on concepts in physics along with questions about existence and reality. Throughout literary history, there's been a tradition of poets engaging with science, and I see this aspect of Ray's work as somewhat under-acknowledged, but also as an extension of, of this longer tradition, and also part of an interdisciplinary movement in contemporary poetry today, where poets are incorporating science into their work as philosophical investigations, the way Ray does, but also as acts of science itself. Um, that there are so many poets working with science and poetry as linked modes of inquiry um, is a significant response that writers are having today to different orders of knowledge and reality outside of the mainstream. Um, in Ray's poems, physics collides with everyday objects, media and information culture, and inquiries into ontological experience and perception. Um, one aspect of her work that aligns with the language writers of which she is associated is that the materiality of language and how language mediates thinking is at the foreground of her poetry. She's not using language but working with it, not assuming universality or seeing the poem as a vehicle for transcendence, morality, or clarity, but instead working where transcendence, morality, and clarity fail. Her vision is peripheral and fractured, speaking to the emergent and approximate ecologies supported by physics such as quantum mechanics. Her foregrounding of the materiality of language in her poetry aligns her work with the investigations of the material universe that happens in disciplines like physics. Ray's latest book itself starts with the poem Chirality, and within the second stanza, she's referencing what could be interpreted as string theory or that elementary particle known as the neutrino. She says, if I didn't need to do anything, would I? Would I oscillate in two or three dimensions? String theorists propose that our universe is one of many and that matter is made of particles bound at the subatomic level by oscillating strings, vibrating membranes of energy. The casual swift mov movement from a simple yet provocative musing to the question of would the speaker as a collection of strings or as a neutrino exist in these dimensions, it complicates the subject position of the poem, making the speaker the string or neutrino. And a few stanzas later, she writes, a massless particle passes through the void with no resistance. And here she, be, she seems to be referencing a weightless particle like the neutrino that doesn't have mass and which passes through all matter. And some of them even contain their own, they're, they're particles that um, contain their own antiparticle. Um, so they're very mysterious. And she says, ask what it means to pass through the void and ask how it differs from not passing. 
So what is matter in the context of space and time is a question that this line evokes. And by writing a poem about this question, she's asking similar questions that physicists ask. Chirality, the poem's title, refers to the issue of asymmetry in physics. So scientists are interested in the asymmetry of matter and antimatter in the universe. There's a lot more matter than antimatter in the known universe. And neutrinos that may contain their own antiparticles are being studied by physicists to learn more about this. Um, so when the speaker of her poem asks what it means to pass through the void or, and not, the speaker is asking these questions as well as asking how meaning itself is determined in not just poetry but in physics as well. Um, the first two stanzas of her poem dress up in her book just saying, explore what existence means by condensing and arranging Stephen Gubser's The Little Book of String Theory, referencing a dressed electron that emits virtual particles, which spontaneously jump in and out of existence and are real or not, depending on how reality is defined. She ends the poem with the image of a toddler waiting for the speaker and her companions to get the joke about being here, being there. Ray brings together the virtual particle and the toddler in the same poem, but not to create an easy correspondence between them, though we might see an image of the toddler dressing up, which plays off of the dressed electron that emits virtual particles, but as a way to see what happens when the images are joined. We make our own associations. She's not setting out to prove a hypothesis, but treating experimentation, curiosity, and inquiry through language as an end in and of itself. The last couplet in the poem about being here, being there, evokes the virtual particle being here, being there. It evokes Gertrude Stein's there is no there there, and also what I would call the elsewhere and everywhere, but not somewhere that is a nowhere, like quanta at the subatomic level. One dresses up, whether the subject position is the electron or the adults viewing the toddler, all existing in costume, which is reality, where at times we might play as the toddler might play dress up, by using the imagination to pretend to be something somewhere else while at the same time here, everywhere, and nowhere. The poem suggests it takes imagination to contend with physics, and it is an investigation into its own freedom to be here and there. In other poems of Ray's, we see properties in physics humorously addressed. So for example, in her poem, Accounts, in just saying, she presents the speed of light and relativity being interrupted with a drinking cup that has a slogan that reads, thinking of you, with an exclamation point. Um, the cup brings this absurd and unpretentious exuberance to her exploration of the speed of light. This collaging of physics with an ordinary object with a marketing slogan is a signature gesture of Ray's, and we see a similar move in her poem Material, which combines physics with material from an infomercial. There, the poem opens with, a dry, with dry infomercial speak. Oh, you're wearing the gold one. That's my favorite, to be honest. The gunmetal is all gone. Ostensibly, the gunmetal color is sold out, right, from the, from the um, whatever's being sold at the, on the infomercial. But next, she moves into a discussion about how we exist as infinitesimal points. Um, material she told me that she got from a book by the physicist Brian Cox. And her poem accounts, by the way, is dedicated to Brian Keating, a physicist with whom she co-taught a course on poetry and physics at the University of California in San Diego. Um, in her poem Around, in her book Versed, she contends with her mortality in relation to time and what she calls its pendulous loops, which have meaning. This meaning, she says, italicizing the this. Um, the poem narrates a scene where she and a family member have found a spot where her ashes would be scattered upon her death. They are being shown this spot, she says, by a sort of realtor, highlighting the eerie similarities of how shopping for a place of final rest and death is like shopping for a house where one lives. The scene is narrated with an emotional detachment um, an ex or maybe an acceptance of the reality, but it's tethered by these earlier, this earlier passage about time and its pendulous loops, and then a statement about time in quotations indicating another slogan or sign, um, the future is all around us. Outside of the quotation marks, she says, it's a place, talking about the future, and then in a new stanza, any place we don't exist. The future is any place we don't exist. 
In this moment, she makes time a space, a period, without us, which speaks to the place where her ashes can be scattered. The stanza break in between any place and we don't exist is a break in time and space, too, just enough for the reader to feel our own mortality and absence in that period of space between stanzas. In her poem, Passage, she writes, I existed finally as the idea of temporal extension, inverting the ordinary notion that humans and nature are three-dimensional and moving through a linear dimension of time, which is the fourth dimension in physics, with a different notion that the speaker exists as time, or as the fourth dimension extended instead into three dimensions of space. Existence in this context is what she calls later in a a later poem a double meaning, or later in that poem, a double meaning or a superposition, the latter term referring to a property of subatomic particles in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, where particles exist in all possible points of space in time in superposition before the moment of observation or measurement when their wave functions collapse and then come out of superposition. Um, The word is superposition is followed by the image of a creature appearing larger and more ferocious than it is. So the image serves to bring even further nuance to the concept of superposition. What is real and what is a ruse? A nuance that happens between the possible and the actual, between the passage of life and death. In her poem, Spin, in uh, Money Shot, Uh, She references the quantum mechanical property of spin, and despite the name of the property spin, subatomic particles don't rotate but possess this property of spin, which is an intrinsic property of particles like mass. Um, So physicists describe spin as angular momentum, and her poem talks about particles having spin but no dimension or volume and depth, and yet these particles are said to exist. The poem asks, how is this possible? Except this question is not asked directly, but instead through offering information about the particles and then moving on to two sections, one describing the speech of a political candidate and the other a simple statement where she says, light strikes our eyes and we say, look there with an exclamation point, and the word there, italicized. It's like her earlier examination of the here and there that we see in her poem, Dress Up, whereas the dressed electron emitting virtual particles points to being here and being there at the same time. In her poem, Spin, to get there, we have to speak and say, look, after the light has struck our eyes. Seeing there is a mechanical process mediated by light, the eyes, and most importantly, language. It's the speech act or poem that directs us to encounter what is ordinarily taken for granted. However, in the context of physics and everyday experience, the generic language in Ray's poems, what we encounter is not only the idea of existence, the generic language of a politician or light striking the eyes. What we encounter are these ideas together on the page in language. It's there where we begin to see that the politician's empty phrasing is the dimensionless point that theoretically spins the way news spins. It has no depth. Because we are embedded in our own quantum mechanical properties, we can never see anything from the outside. We can only see there when the light allows us to see there. And this is where I think a metacritical reading of Ray's poetry is necessary. The poem is itself an occasion where observation is directed, except it doesn't point us to the static reality narrowed by a perspective that is presumed to be happening only here and only there. Instead, her poetry suggests that the poem is also something like a neutrino or a dimensionless point dressed with virtual particles here and there at the same time, operating outside of reality that is unmediated by poetic language with its own strange properties. Um, In her newer poem, accordingly, she addresses how space-time operates in quantum mechanics. In Planck time, which is one way how time is measured in quantum theory, she says, things get fuzzy, less thingy. She's comparing the fuzziness of quantum mechanics to the precision of the scientific method, which is based on observing nature to describe natural laws, which she evokes with the phrase, concrete as a slot machine. Um, In quantum mechanics, you can't describe the position and momentum of particles with certainty. This is the uncertainty principle. When she writes, um, to be precise, you need to stop a moment, which turns out to be impractical, she seems to be saying that in quantum mechanics, a moment cannot be stopped and observed. And she's referencing relativity when she says, and besides, speed is of the essence. 
Um, in this poem, as in so many others, she's using her poetic form to its maximum potential. So the short lines, the section breaks, it all serves to physically compress these cosmological ideas into a minimalist or subatomic body, creating a kind of shorthand for the poem, making the poem itself a kind of vehicle of time travel. Um, a tesseract, like Doctor Who's um, TARDIS time machine, which is bigger on the inside um, than the outside. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Kathy Wagner here. I'm so delighted to be here on this stage with favorite living poet, Ray Armentrout. She's just amazing. And also to be with all of you. So my paper is called U.S. Customs and Border Reflections. Understood broadly as boundaries, barriers, walls, transition zones, points at which one thing starts and another stops, borders are everywhere in Ray Armentrout's work. I'm going to discuss the figure and the fact of the border in Ray Armentrout's poems in relation to the politically geographical and historical border between the U.S. and Mexico. On the way, I'll talk briefly about the activist poet-scholar Gloria Ansaldúa, who is a useful figure for comparison because she was about Ray's... She's a very different writer, but she's, um, she was about Ray's age, and she died, in two, she died in 2004. She's five years older than Ray, I think, and she grew up in the borderlands, too, although way at the other end, almost 2,000 miles away in Texas. I won't have time to go over all the instances where border-like structures come up in Ray's poems or all the ways she makes strategic uses of the borders and passages available in poetic form, juxtapositioning, line breaks, etc. But I will throw a few examples up on the screen while I'm talking. Please forgive how quickly I flip through these. I'm happy to share if, you, if anybody wants to see. So political geographical border references come up once in a while. Much more often... Other sorts of border-like structures are imaged. Various passageways, walls and barriers, protected zones such as Eden, and transition points, neuronal passageways, or the event horizon at uh, the edge of a black hole. Ray also frequently uses border-like language to describe her own and other, others' poems, as when she described in an early essay a poem by Sharon Olds as a fenced yard and her own poem, View, as an instance of, poetic, of a poetics of collisions and overlaps, contested spaces. Ray also uses formal strategies that could be described as border-like. Her poems are highly segmented. Here's an example. Not to look at closely, but just it's a, it's a short one that shows a form that she frequently does use. Her poems across her books are highly segmented among much formal variety. She relies on short lines and short stances quite frequently, on sections divided by numbers or asterisks or similar symbols, a strategy of juxtaposition that leaves gaps a reader's brain must fill. Those segments are firmly ordered. The relations between segments is not fixed or monodirectional. The implicit request is to look back, look again. We see differently from the other side of the gap. I'm speculating that the many images of borders and transition zones in Ray's work has, have to do with the presence of the Mexico-U.S. border so close by. And there you can see where Ray lives. There's a little tiny arrow. <laughs> Not the address. Um, Ray writes frequently about her local environment, suburban scenes. What's under Ray's nose, what composes her poems, isn't usually the political border. By contrast, in Gloria Ansaldúa's writing, for example, the violence the border enacts on her community's bodies and minds looms large. But to think of Ray's writing as borderland writing draws attention to her frequent use of images of porous boundaries and charged transition zones. Just as we might see the walls around San Diego's many gated communities as reproductions in miniature of the efforts to promote security at the national, national border, we can look at border-like structures represented in Ray's poems and investigate how they manifest and figuratively interrogate a settler colonialist perspective. Okay, so now for some, I'll run through some information about where Ray grew up and still lives and what's happened to the border in her lifetime. She grew up in the 50s and 60s in a place called Allied Gardens in northern San Diego, 22 miles from the border. Apart from some years in the Bay Area, Ray has always lived near the border in San Diego. In 1970, when she graduated from college, white non-Hispanics like her made up 78% of California's population. 
Chicanos and Mexicans would likely not have been a strong presence in her daily life. In her memoir, True, Ray mentions awareness of her white identity, but in the context of a visit to the segregated U.S. South. As of 2014, white non-Hispanics had dropped to only 38% of California's total population, while the Hispanic population, white and non-white, accounted for 39%. However, San Diego and San Diego County remain predominantly non-Hispanic white. In high school, Ray fantasized about crossing the border with her friend Linda. Linda and I had heard that old Mexico was a lot like the old west. We decided to run away and live there as bandits. We would take buses to Nogales in the White Mountains of Arizona. There we would buy horses and disappear over the border. Ray is poking gentle fun at her girl self. She calls the idea an insane mission. She and her friend desire a place apart where they can change their identities, become outlaws. Their dissatisfaction with home makes them desire a non-place where they can be other than they are, and that place is Mexico. The activist poet-scholar Gloria Ansaldúa, also from the borderlands, and born five years before Ray to a mestizo family, had a different perspective on the border, which she calls a 1,950-mile-long open wound dividing a pueblo, a culture running down the length of my body, splits me, splits me. This is my home, this thin edge of barbed wire. The first section of Anzaldúa's book, Borderlands, La Frontera, begins at the San Diego border. At Borderfield Park, at the border between San Diego and Tijuana, I walk through the hole in the fence to the other side. Under my fingers, I feel the gritty wire rusted by 139 years of the salty breath of the sea. For Anzaldúa, who was from a mestiza background and who was also lesbian, so between cultures in that way as well, the border is both physical and effective, a zone of indeterminate dangers created by the people who stole the lands from its residents after the Spanish-American War, the whites who continue to decide who counts as illegitimate, whose bodies can be treated violently. Borders are set up to define the places that are safe and unsafe, to distinguish us from them. A borderland is a vague and undetermined place created by the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. Gringos in the U.S. Southwest consider the inhabitants of the borderlands transgressors, aliens, whether they possess documents or not. Trespassers will be raped, maimed, strangled, gassed, shot. The only legitimate inhabitants are those in power, the whites and those who align themselves with whites. Ambivalence and unrest reside there, and death is no stranger. The border has become more of a barrier since Anzaldúa died. Construction on the U.S.-Mexico barrier, a 700-mile secure fence with additional security apparatuses such as cameras and monitoring stations, was authorized in 2006. It was intended to deter illegal immigration and transportation of illegal drugs. Congress allotted 1.2 million, sorry, billion to build it. The barrier has led to a steep increase in the number of people trying to cross in difficult terrain. As of 2007, some 50,000 people had died crossing the border most notably in the Sonoran Desert, where a crossing point leads across the Babokivari Mountain in Arizona. Oddly enough, this crossing is not far from where Ray and her friend Linda hoped to cross into Mexico. The borders and border-like imagery in Ray's poems obviously do not address the violence and oppression the barrier causes and Anzaldúa's works describes, not directly, but her poems do flip between anecdotes and perspectives that juxtapose, describe, and critique power relations. Let's look at three poems by Ray that were written about 20 years apart from one another. The first poem in Ray's very first book, published in 1978. In Extremities, published 13 years after Ray planned to light out for the Mexican desert, here's a similarly attractive and dangerous desert, a place of pilgrimage and purposeful deprivation. One goes to the desert at Lent to be like Christ during his 40 days in the desert. This no place, a landscape of zeros, is protected by swords, as is the Garden of Eden. Yet the word swords contains words, and the lines across which beings vanish, flare, the boundary between us and the desert, could be lines of poetry. The desert here is a desirable place, dangerous as it is, associated with the power of language to reveal the edge of the knowable by naming it. Visibility from 1995 directly mentions the U.S.-Mexico border, but each section brings up barriers of some sort. In the first section, the speaker recognizes that it's attractive to be deceived, that the windows she's sitting near can't be seen through. She likes feeling inaccessible and protected. 
though she's on some level aware that she's not. In the third section, in which the speaker observes migrants trying to cross the freeway, and I've got a picture here of a road sign that would have been around when Ray wrote that poem, a San Diego freeway road sign. The speaker notes that aliens is a word connected with this scene. If she, the speaker, can avoid these words, what remains should be her experience. Mm -hmm. Maybe the speaker is expressing a desire to keep the alienness of the migrants out of her own view, to preserve a nationalistic purity. Or maybe the speaker would like to avoid the power of the word aliens, to, that the power of the word aliens has to make her see the migrants in a bigoted way, wanting to avoid what we might now call racial scripts. With the ambiguity of the passage, Ray draws attention to the often deceptive power of words to direct experience. The last poem I will discuss is Normal, which is a new poem. It's absolutely a tour de force of a new poem from Partly, uh, selected in new poems, which I thought maybe would be out for AWP, but apparently isn't going to be out. Um, it's a fantastic book, so you must get it when it comes out. This poem's The Border and Normal is in its rhetorical structure. We move from, you see how it says intelligence is distributed, greed is emergent property, and then there's a mirror. Goals are emergent property, others are distributed. In that middle part, um, we move through this transformative transition point at the midpoint of the poem, that when we finish, leads us to start again from the top with a new perspective. So the beginning of the poem um, expresses a point of view reminiscent of Charles Murray's The Bell Curve, where IQ is unequally distributed, and ergo, some can be greedier than others. Survival instincts that do violence to others are simply normal. The first half of the poem summarizes the individualistically oriented assumptions sometimes used to justify quote-unquote free market capitalism of the type that constructed the maquiladoras on the border. The middle sentences are a valve or an asymmetrical chiasmus, a rhetorical transition point, leading us to a mirror image of the first two lines where we discover the harmful effects of the perspective of the first half of the poem. Others are distributed. The grammar, passive, establishes the others as passive recipients of distributed forces that promote the difference between powerful subjects and others who get moved around, whether they like it or not. As we move down what appear to be a logical set of statements, we cross a boundary between assumptions and their results and find ourselves in a land of harm resembling our own, where some eyes have it and others don't. Raised boundaries are, are points at which we catch language in the act of constructing our reality. Among all the playful voices adapted in Ray's poems, all the speculative perspectives, I haven't come across attempts at speculatively inhabiting the experience of the humans who move through the borderland close by, though migrants are certainly mentioned here and there. If there is sympathy for migrant experience here, it resists any attempt to puppet it in speculative voicings. Is the difference between Ray's and Anzaldúa's experiences of the border unbridgeable? In Two and Two, a poem in itself, Ray says that if there and here can be made to coincide, what else might not be possible? If limits, as Charles Olson said, are what we are all inside of, Ray's poems mess with those boundaries. Her moving, articulated, fierce honesty about the perspectives available to her is evident in the titles she's given her two volumes of selected poems. Through the vigilantly observed and articulated obscurity of the veil, we can see partly. Thank you. So I did not do a formal paper, uh, much like my dog who used to leave me dead chipmunks on the doorstep, not because I like chipmunks, but because chipmunks were what he could do. I can do PowerPoints, and uh, so that's what I did. Okay, so Ray Armentrout, of course, has been one of my greatest lifetime influences, a mentor, a friend. Um, I'm so proud to be here uh, with her. And, you know, I often teach Ray's work, and I think that's kind of what this talk is directed to, even to beginning undergraduates. I mean, she's often the first so-called difficult poet that they've encountered. And in class after class, they go absolutely nuts for her work. 
you know, but they want to be able to articulate why they like it, right? They're students and, you know, what they like so much about it, what draws them. And, you know, I can talk about her use of found language of phrases that, whether or not set off by air quotes, present themselves as hackneyed, makeshift, secondhand, spent. Uh, but in this day and age, honestly, who doesn't make use of found language? Similarly, I could tell my students about her syntactical slippages, the disembodied and unstable and shifting speakers of her palms, stripped of pronouns and identifying speaker features, her sudden swerve to focus as if through a macro lens on a particular detail, on a jointed grass blade, on the ragged skirt of dust surrounding a decorative gourd. But none of these aspects of Ray's work, singly or in conjunction, seem adequately to describe what it is that makes an Armantrout poem recognizable as an Armantrout poem, that particular sensibility. And in working with these students, I found an unlikely resource to be useful in explaining at least some aspects of what is going on in some of Ray's poems. The 2009 film, of course, Avatar. And thus I have titled this highly... Uh, Informal presentation, Ray Armentrout, Avatar, or what a terrible movie can tell us about a great poet's work. <laughs> so a brief plot recap for those of you wise enough not to have seen this movie. Um, the film is set in a post-apocalyptic future in which Earth has exhausted its own resources and ex must exploit those of other worlds. One of those worlds is called Pandora, which has a precious mineral called unobtainium. <laughs> Pandora is inhabited by an indigenous race of tall, blue-skinned humanoids called the Navi, all of whom have pledged to support Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. <laughs> uh, the atmosphere of Pandora is poisonous to humans. The hero of the film is a wounded, now paraplegic U.S. Marine named Jake Sully. And just as an aside, surely they must have known that Jake Sully means dirty toilet, right? I mean, did that occur to anyone? Um, Anyhow, uh, Jake is recruited by the military for a top-secret mission on Pandora. Upon his arrival, he learns that the military has created a synthetic Navi body for him, called an avatar. This avatar has been genetically matched to his own body. They intend to transfer his consciousness to this Navi avatar. This will allow him to survive in Pandora's atmosphere and to interact with the Navi population. In the meantime, his body will be placed in cryogenic suspension. He agrees to the deal, is put to sleep, and wakes up to his new existence as an avatar, a consciousness trapped, for better or for worse, in an alien body. He finds himself to be the possessor, the inhabitant of a body that feels unnatural, ungainly, unfamiliar. Sensations, movements, coordination between mind and body all feel brand new to him as experienced for the first time in a way that is potentially terrifying as well as exhilarating. He is in danger of sensory overload, of being a danger to himself and others. He learns that his new body is immensely powerful in ways that he must learn to control. He uses his avatar to explore the world of Pandora to experience alien pleasures and new modes of existence. The thick plottons, as they say. Um, <laughs> various heavy-handed post-colonial hijinks ensue. And at times we are recalled to an awareness of the abandoned actual body frozen in its pod. Often the abandoned body occupies the traditional position of the damsel in distress, presented as helpless, a bone of contention in need of rescue. Although the abandoned body is eventually revealed to be superfluous, dispensable, obsolete, it still serves as an emotional anchor for the film, a link to what is perceived to be authentic, non-synthetic, natural, the concept of home. So why am I bringing this up? After all, I'm not claiming that Ray was influenced by this movie if she ever even saw it. You did see it. And the only use of the word avatar that I found in Ray's work is in the poem <laughs> Operations in this memorable phrase, hey, my avatar is not working. 
uh, which was written before the movie Avatar ever came out, although video game avatars, I think, uh, were commonplace at the time. But instead, I use the term avatar to refer to the way the speaker in Ray's poems situates herself with respect to the world of language. Because, of course, it is a post-structuralist commonplace that the self is constituted as language, that ourselves themselves are semi-linguistic constructs. But Ray's work really brings that to life. It enacts this strangeness, this alienness of the linguistically constituted self. Uh, Bob Perlman has suggested something like this when he writes of Ray's poem, Disown, Becoming a social being does not entail possession of one's perceptions of the world. Amnesia, repression, alienation are constant results. It's as if every time you read one of Ray's poem, you, find yourself, you wake up to find yourself trapped in a new body, an alien body, an artificial body made up of bits and pieces of other people's language, mm-hmm. a body that is ungainly, uncomfortable, unfamiliar, powerful, and in some ways marvelous, a body whose foreignness, whose inauthenticity you never become accustomed to, a body that might look something like this. Uh, This is the cover of itself, and when I first saw this image, of course, I wanted to know more about it, so I turned to the book jacket description. This photograph of a spongy decorator crab, Marcosilema trispinosum, shows how this particular crab used other living creatures to decorate itself, in this case by including some spectacular zoanthids, zoanthus spa. Uh, Decorator crabs attach a variety of living and non-living material to their carapace, exoskeleton shell as camouflage. Um, I tried Googling this text, and I didn't get any other hits than Ray's book, which (laughs) led me to suspect, where did this come from? Did you write it? Did Stephanie write it? Where did this text come from, Ray? Um, I didn't write it. Okay. In any case, this image looks a lot like the physical analog to the linguistic construct of an avatar that I've been describing, a Frankenstein-like assemblage of other people's detritus. So what does this look like in some actual poems? Um, In the interest of time, I'm not going to be able to read them aloud, but let's start with an early example from Extremities. Uh, This is the poem Xenophobia. Uh, Some things to note here. Note the way the forced word, the word that is forced here, chimera, is not set off syntactically from the rest of the, of the section. So it becomes unclear how much of the rest of the language of the poem, the description of the houses that ensues, is itself forced, a prescription recited by rote in images that suggest the deteriorating body, uh, language that's the doctor's language as much as it is the speaker. And in part five of this poem, the way the phrases, not my expression, not my net of veins, are placed as syntactical parallels so that the language and the body are conflated and equated. Let's look at another poem. Sorry, I'm really ripping through these because of the time limits. So this is the poem Attention from, from Necromance. And uh, Ron Silliman, who's the one, uh, one of the privileged few with whom uh, Ray apparently shares her early drafts, has observed that her process of revision is often one in which pronouns disappear, a process of depersonalization. And thus the reader is thrust directly into the situation without a stable speaker or other proxy. Here the reader awakens to discover herself in a linguistic state of forced infantilization. I'm not a baby. Wah, wah. Mm-hmm. Even her protests that she is not a baby are couched in baby language. Uh, but even as this plight is enacted, the reader is also and simultaneously introduced to an, an awakening pleasure in this new world of language. She discovers the you in the heart of molecule and ridicule as if discovering the core of a new flower. She fashions a rhyme out of the thing mothwing as if awakening to a sense of her own potential power as a user of language. Let's move on to the poem statement from a pretext. Here we get a sense of the discomfort, the ineptitude of this linguistically constituted self. When I say dissociation, I may have said real-time action. The linguistic avatar the speaker finds herself inhabiting is ungainly with an apparently malfunctioning interface between intention and utterance. The avatar is also troublingly unstable, morphing from moment to moment in response to other people's names, from potential demographic mother 
31-year-old, to mother as obstetric patient, prima gravida, to nicknamed actual mother of a little golden book reading child, pokey puppy. Where does the morphing stop? It seems that anything can be a name as long as it follows certain conventions of capitalization. The distractible sparrow, the smallest district, the strictest definition. The chameleon-like qualities of the avatar have caused the speaker to disappear into her own surroundings, this new world of language. Here's a section of the title poem of Up to Speed. And here, to contrast the slipperiness of the signifier, we get an image of the literal, the concrete, literally concrete bricks. And this image of the actual is almost nostalgic, almost an emotional anchor. The speaker searches her linguistic arsenal, what she has available, and she throws various terms at it instantly, forever, only to have them bounce off this wall. And an impenetrable wall surrounds the word. The unapproachable word takes on a quasi-religious significance. The air quotes around the phrase, with God, might as well be the curtains of a sort of tabernacle, a sort of veil. So from the title poem to Money Shot, why don't you just say what you mean? Why don't I? Again, the ineptness, the inadequacy of this avatar is vividly enacted, the frustration of inhabiting other people's language. Even the speaker's pushback against the absurd question, why don't you say what you mean, is couched in a repetition of the same found language. This is the, this, the boundaries of her universe. Uh, you know, there's something of the futility of using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house here. I mean, how can the speaker adequately convey the inadequacy of language if she has only inadequate language to work with in the first place. As part of the language lesson, I have holes cut in my forehead. You know, at times, especially in her more recent work, uh, we see avatar-like figures more directly represented. And for me, that sort of coincides with an increasing comfort with using a first-person speaker that we see in, I think, some of her more recent uh, books. The persistent downplaying of the first person is... Uh, is becoming less frequent. It used to be you would read through Ray Armentrout's book and it would be like first-person safari. Ooh, I saw an eye, you know, and <laughs> now it's much less like that. Um, okay, and, um, you know, I'm just going to end with this poem, Expression, from itself. And I may be biased, but I feel like the qualities that I've been talking about here are so apparent that there's nothing to be added to the simple pleasure of reading this poem, which I will indulge myself in now. Expression, give me your spurt of verbs, your welter of pronouns desiring to be spread, bulge-eyed, clear-bodied brine shrimp bobbing to the surface. I prefer the hermit trundling off in someone else's exoskeleton. But we all come down to self-love, self-love which, like a virus, has no love and has no self. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's amazing to hear all these smart people talk about you. So many different interesting things that they said. And thank you for coming. I don't know how much time I have. I know I'm supposed to read a little bit. And maybe we should leave time for questions. So this is my most recent book itself. I'm not going to read from it, but I will be signing it um, <laughs> right after this, downstairs in the Wesleyan booth. What I thought I would do is read from some forthcoming books from Wesleyan, so newer work, which I always like to read. So the, uh, my new and selected partly is forthcoming in August or September. I'm going to read a couple of poems from that to start with. My voice is kind of going, too, on top of everything else, <clears throat> so please bear with me. Um, this is structured like the kind of problem you might have had to do at school. Word problems. If a fat man with one earlobe distended by a large ring and a thin man in a heavy neck chain sit together checking email, the reel is made up of things minus appearance. Near eucalyptus strands of green crescents and their shadows 
flighty half-moons, while the soul is made up of appearance minus things. This one is about films, kind of in general. The difficulty. This film, like many others, claims we'll enjoy life now that we've come through difficulties, dangers, so incredibly condensed that they must be over. (laughs) If the hardship was undergone by others, we identified with them. And if the danger was survived by simpler life forms, they're included in this moment when the credits roll and we don't know when to stand. This is a prose poem that I wrote after being asked to do a craft talk, as some of us, you know, are forced to do. And uh, I'm always very uncomfortable with that because I just never know if I mean what I'm saying. So that becomes the subject. The craft talk. So that the best thing you could do, it seemed, was climb inside the machine that was language and feel what it wanted or was capable of doing at any point, steering only occasionally. The best thing was to let language speak its piece while standing inside it, not like a knight in armor, exactly, not like a mascot in a chicken suit, The best thing was to create in the reader or listener an uncertainty as to where the voice she heard was coming from so as to frighten her a little. Why should I want to frighten her? (laughs) This one is actually from Wobble, by the way. I'm reading poems from another forthcoming book called Wobble. Object permanence. What if the ability to capture emblems in the wild won't validate us? What if displaying our embarrassing flaws won't save us, say being dead but kittenish? I can't show you anything new, not even an empty room behind a velvet rope, least of all that. There's Alexis spinning in a parking lot because a mountain road is so cliche. It's throwing up dust, then more, but you know the car's still in there, somewhere, still voguing. (laughs) You know. You come in here all high-heeled, prune-lipped, tired. You come in marbled, with bullet point cirrus, as if the sky. You know the type, white, speckled, mantis, that mimes an orchid, like his mother dressed him, all dead eye. This this sort of riffs off a a William Carlos Williams poem um, that irritated me when I read it recently, even though I love him. His is called Old Woman's Lament in Springtime, and it's about a a widow who feels like killing herself because her husband died. And I take a lot of the same sort of uh, sentence structures and just put more modern things into them as content. So anyway, Old Woman's Lament in Autumn. Sorrow is my corner store where jack-o'-lantern balloons get high on the last helium. The end cap is gold today with numbered bags of Werther's originals. No one is Werther. Last night, a newscaster mentioned an elderly victim. Don't call me that. I'm old and obdurate. (laughs) Flicker. When it was them, our parents dying, the way they tried to deny what was happening, the way they were angry at the wrong things, seemed of a piece with the way they'd always been wrong about us, we thought. The way they were wrong about the world, which they saw only through the haze of their own swath of the past, so that it seemed natural for us to scoff inwardly, even at their deaths. 
But now it was one of us threatening to get up and walk out of the hospital on his withered legs, sheer sticks, because it was killing him. Clouds of methane rise from dumps outside our city. As I drop a square of soft cheese through a slot into the bin marked landfill. Of course I feel bad about feeling good, about feeling bad about this. But as time speeds up, everything will flicker. Arch. Like an arched eyebrow traveling alone, you drift, seahorse, a forgotten, persistent question. Despite your skeptical attitude, it's true that your numbers are crashing. Still, you are rumored to consume up to 3,000 baby shrimp per day. Who doesn't want to be a revenant, to go back to basics in a big way? on the small screen, which somehow still survives. Terrific and terrible are cousins, after all. Am I warm or cold? I'm half rhyming, aiming right between quick and dead, like we could thread that needle and keep going. And apparently just one more. This one actually features the word corrosion, which came up in, in, in Stephanie's talk, I think. Unquote. Take this cup away from me with its hints of ammonia and dill, oak or corrosion. What might ammonia taste like to a different person? Roll that question around on your tongue. You've heard it before, or something like it. The familiar is enormous, red-shifted. I'm happy to think of this deep sleep, the sleep of the dead, as a guilty pleasure I am getting away with. Okay. minute left if anyone wants to ask Ray a very quick question. So does anyone have any, any questions for Ray? For, any, for, anyone? for anyone? Oh, you have a question? Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the first person pronoun, which Monica says we don't need to have a safari to find <laughs> about either your relation to the sense of the self as a sort of feeling or about your relation to the words I and me and myself? Yeah, um, I, I think it's true, you know, it's factually true that I and even more often we appear in my poems more frequently than they used to. But I don't necessarily, not necessarily, identify with that pronoun when I say it, mm. you know. Um, the we is certainly slippery, but the I can be slippery too. And sometimes the voice that I'm using is not a voice that I particularly identify with, and sometimes it is. So that kind of slides in and out. But yeah, maybe I'm a less less frightened by the pronoun than I was. Um, probably not the confessional poetry of Lowell and Plath, but more the uh, post-confessional, second-generation confessional poetry of the 70s and 80s, which was quite prevalent and dominant when I was coming up. And I think I was I was just part of a reaction against that, you know, so that my avoidance of those terms was probably part of a collective response, I guess. Thank you. I think we do have to go now because we have to pack up. But you can come up and ask questions.
Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.